Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the Investors Chronicle Investing Explained podcast series. Today we're going to talk through the key things you need to know about investing overseas. While once a dominant force on the world stage, the UK now represents a slither of the global stock market, under 4% according to MSCI World Index. With us, I'm delighted to have IG's Chief Markets Analyst, Chris Beecham, back on the podcast, alongside the IC's Deputy Editor, Dan Jones. UK investors have a tendency to have a high proportion of their investment portfolio invested in UK shares. Chris, what's the benefit of getting overseas exposure? Well, I always think it's important to broaden your horizons. It is, to avoid sounding trite, it is a big world out there. And as you pointed out, the UK is increasingly represented a smaller part of the global stock market. I think it was sort of 30% back a century ago, and it's now down, as you say, to 4% or so. And I think you are sort of limiting your options in many ways if you stick to UK shares. I don't think it's a it's a sin that's um, unique to UK investors. If, uh, if you look at the US, a lot of investors there stick to US shares. It just ha- so happens that the last 10 years or so have been really, really beneficial for them. So sometimes it works really well to be concentrated in one place. And sometimes it doesn't work really well. Like everything in investing, I think you have to balance these things out. There will be times when UK shares outperform, although that time hasn't happened for a long while yet. Um, and there'll be times when they don't do as well. And you're simply limiting yourself in many ways to the options out there. Um, and yes, you have to be careful about investing in overseas markets, particularly those emerging ones. But really, it is a world of opportunity. And there are many good investments. And just because they're not listed on the FTSE, doesn't mean you should ignore them completely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I guess there are currency implications too, which we'll, we'll get on to later. Um, but Dan, how much do you think it might be sensible to have invested in the UK versus the rest of the world? Hi, hi, Mary. Hi, everyone. Uh, that that does depend on your attitude to an appetite for risk, of course. Uh, and as Chris says, um, there are riskier areas of the, the world, emerging markets um, out there. Uh, but you can look at, I think, professional portfolios for a hint here. Uh, the average advised investor, for example, has around 60% of their portfolio in equities, of which a third of that is in the UK, maybe a quarter in the US and the rest in Europe, Japan, emerging markets. Uh, Private investors obviously do tend to have a bit more in the home markets, as Chris was saying, maybe 60% or more, you know, it can get pretty elevated. So I think reining that in certainly would be a decent goal. I don't think it's necessary to get close to the MSCI world weighting of 4% necessarily. Um, but but bringing that back, you know, to uh, somewhere in between is probably quite sensible with the rest, therefore, in in overseas um, uh, funds and shares. I mean, that that can be quite a big change for some, especially if you're investing in direct equities, you know, so um, you've got to be mindful of that. But equally, as Chris says, you know, the, the valuation opportunities can dictate those exposures too. And with the UK having underperformed for the past few years, uh, that might be an opportunity for some in the next few years. Yeah, I guess. And we're talking about overseas as if it's one category, but it's an enormous region with lots of different um, different countries in it. Funds are often categorised as investing in North America, Europe, Japan or emerging markets. Asia is often singled out. I think it might be helpful for us to go through what the different profiles are of the different geographies. So, Dan, if we come to you again, the US is the the market that dominates the global stock market. Can you talk us through the characteristics of the US market and why investors might want exposure to the US? Yeah, I mean, uh, the US has obviously been the big winner of the past few years in particular. Uh, the 
main reason for that, or certainly the, the highest profile reasons, of course, the the tech companies you have there, the fangs, um, the big companies everyone knows about, you know, Facebook, Google, going by different names now, of course, but uh, Apple, uh, Amazon, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that is a big part of the US market. It does speak to its qualities, which is it does have uh, a large array of quality companies, um, of which those tech businesses are good examples. But just in general, in the US, there are a lot of innovative corporates out there. That's certainly the perception. Um, so that does mean, you know, you can get companies carving niches for themselves quite quickly, particularly in this age of digital disruption. Uh, the potential rewards can be quite significant, therefore, particularly uh, if these are companies starting from a small base and I think you've seen that in areas like the software space in particular in recent years when you look at the market in general now uh, you've got the S&P 500 tech is about 30 percent of that uh, obviously that's a pretty big weighting after that you've got you know healthcare is a uh, another strength of the US but I think the the market in general one of its other qualities is that it is so broad that it does you know cover all bases to an extent you know you can find quality companies in almost any sector you'd care to care to name Similar to the UK, perhaps, when we think, I'm sure individual investors would like to think there are lots of quality companies there, and there, there definitely are. But the benefit in the US has been, A, that performance has really come through in the past decade, and B, they, they've got that um, that innovative culture, that innovative um, uh, mindset, which has really helped some of these companies come through and perform really well. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask why you think the um, the UK, the US has sort of more higher quality companies than the UK and the innovative mindset's a good point. Do you think the regulatory landscape as well, is that is that a factor? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could get into to all kinds of um, uh, kind of socioeconomic uh, reasons for that. I think that that might be the case. The, the economic backdrop in general is another um, big factor. You know, regulation is one thing, you know, encouraging companies, encouraging companies to list there. We have seen in the UK in recent weeks, in fact, that... Um, some move to try and make the UK a more attractive place for listings because it's not just US domiciled companies in the, in the US, of course. But but the economy is, is a big factor as well. Obviously, the, the US tends to be the motor of the world economy. Uh, things have been you know a bit stop-start since the financial crisis, but when things have been going well, it tends to be the US that has led, um, again, in no small part because a lot of these companies are doing uh, uh, really new and interesting things and really you know breaking through and carving carving their own niches, as I said before. So, so that's a big factor as well, particularly when you consider the flip side for the UK is, you know, uh, it's been involved in Brexit negotiations. It's been involved in, you know, real uh, kind of change to the way the economy operates, which has, uh, for some investors, been a reason to steer clear until that long-term picture is a bit clearer. Yeah. And the other developed markets that people might want to look to are Japan and Europe. Chris, what are your thoughts on the investment case for, we'll start with the Japan and then and then Europe? Japan's a market that actually has done actually quite well. Um, I think it flies under the radar for a lot of investors. I think maybe the sort of the legacy of the 80s and the early 90s really continues to make itself felt. Um, it's a market where a lot of value investors still go, I think, because there's an argument that a lot of Japanese firms are underpriced, at least in terms of the sort of traditional metrics. Um Europe is, is an interesting one because it has really begun to recover the last couple of years. And you, you've seen some indices return to record highs or indeed make new record highs um, of late. But overall, it compared to the US, it continues to, to lag behind quite dramatically. There are plenty of good companies. Um, and I suppose this is the thing, isn't it? You have to filter down 
um, and try and sort of sort the wheat from the chaff. And you you, you can find good companies in all in all markets. Um, but with Europe, it really has sort of been constrained by the overhang from the debt crisis. Uh, obviously, COVID hasn't helped. GDP growth has been fundamentally weaker. And you are sort of just seeing a, a, an economy as a whole that is still really making strides to get back into a normal recovery phase, whereas the US is far ahead, which is why I think a lot of the, the potential hasn't really materialized the last few years. You do have some obviously some pockets of strength. The fact that things like German manufacturers are very focused on China can be a good thing and can lead to improved returns. Um, and you have got plenty of developed markets with good consumer spending. So there are those areas to look at. Um, but I think it is in some ways almost as diverse as the US, but you obviously don't quite have those tech and growth titans that have really de delivered US returns over the past few years. And that's why Europe and indeed the FTSE 100 um, have lagged behind to quite a significant extent. Yeah, there's a good point you make about the fact you can find good companies, maybe maybe more stock pickers markets than than the US. And you mentioned China there, which has um, grabbed the headlines a lot this year. Dan, China's now the world's second largest economy, but its stock market had a had a pretty rough time last year following regulatory crackdown on internet companies and nervousness around corporate debt levels and the Evergrande crisis. What's your view on how much exposure, if any, investors should have to China? I think, yeah, this year has shown you do need to be very careful when investing in China or looking for ways to invest. Uh, specifically, if you are investing in uh, Hong Kong shares or even, you know, Chinese A shares, if you have that capability, you know, the volatility there or the potential for volatility is extremely high and not least because of these these changes in the regulatory landscape that, that can uh, manifest literally overnight. So, so I would be very cautious uh, on that basis. I think the way in which investors have accessed China over the past decade, however, is is a good one. Um, insofar as the typical investor, if they take a look at their portfolio, be it funds, shares, what have you, uh, will find they have more Chinese exposure than they think, perhaps, just by virtue of where these companies are deriving their revenues from. A lot of the big quality companies, of course, around the world increasingly get a, a large portion of their revenue base and a growing proportion from China. Uh, that's not volatility free either, of course, you know, there, there are going to be ups and downs there. But uh, I think that that's the best way to access that, to access China, to access the Chinese growth story, um, certainly for now. Yeah, I guess it was always comes back to the same thing that diversification is really important. Um, and of course, there are lots of other emerging markets. Chris, which um which other emerging markets do you think look most appealing for for the year ahead? Well, I think it, it often hinges around markets closely linked to China. We, we've been talking for a long time about the rise of the Asian middle class and how this should continue to drive spending um, and in uh, broader investment performance. And I think it's those kind of countries, um, Vietnam crops up this quite frequently is an interesting country to to look at. Um, beyond that, really, again, it's a case of you have to, the further afield you go, I think, from the developed markets, the more you really have to do your homework. I think this is the, the thing for investors. There's a lot of sort of focus on saying we well, have to be in emerging markets. I think there's the risk, of course, that because there's so many of these markets are quite small um, and the liquidity simply isn't there and the range of companies is, is fairly narrow. You do find, okay, you've invested in Vietnam and the Vietnamese stock market, for example, but that gives you um, a far smaller number of companies than you would think. Um, and the, 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 
these are the risks and things that come with emerging markets. So while I think it's important to keep keep them in mind as potentials, I'm always very wary about just suggesting that we should pick particular nations um, outside the developed ones. As Dan said, of course, you can find yourself with exposure to emerging markets quite inadvertently through normal investments, I think, and that's also an important thing to bear in mind. It comes back again and again again to, to doing your homework, I think, and making sure that when you buy something, it's a, a particular company or an index or a fund, then you need to know what's in it and, and where you're getting your exposure. And you might find that that um, throws up a few surprises that you weren't expecting. You could end up with a more, in some ways, a more diversified portfolio than you were planning simply because of the, the broader nature of the investment world at this point in time. That's very good advice. I think um, emerging markets have often disappointed. You have markets like Brazil, which people expected to to boom and perhaps haven't in the way that they hoped. And to get broad exposure, investing in funds is likely to be more suitable for lots of people than investing in individual shares. We've touched on this a bit. Dan, do you have a view on if um, active or passive is better for different regions and how you might pick between the two? It's an interesting question, yeah. You're right, as you say, funds certainly for emerging market exposure are probably the most sensible route. Um, to take that particular example, um, there are some, you know, active versus passive. A lot of that's in the eye of the beholder. I'm probably not going to convince anyone with a with a view here and now. But to take the emerging market example, um, you can just, you know, say, right, I want access to the Chinese growth story. I want access to all these regions, uh, you know, for a cheap fee. In which case, a passive is the best way to go. But um, there are some, you know, active funds out there that uh, sort of quite high profile ones that that do have less of an exposure to China in particular, for instance, which you know might be a, a way some people might want to go after this year. So so active in that case, you know, has its benefits, the ability to to pick and choose a bit more, not just on a stock specific level, but on a regional level too. Of course, you can do that on a, a passive level level with some uh, ETFs, you know, choose particular regions, but um, then you're getting really, you know, making these kind of regional calls is perhaps, you know, a, a, an extra level of due diligence that, that um, will be beyond some people. So so it does depend. Um, and of course, you know, active, you're, you're always taking that that um, uh, gamble or certainly that that bet on the manager's performance. But but there are, there are ways to to calibrate that exposure quite closely, whether you use active or passive. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I guess the theory goes that the less well-researched markets might give an active manager an example, but I'm not sure to what extent that's necessarily played out. So there's it's sort of horses for courses. Um, so you can get access to funds, but you can also invest in individual companies, which is something close to our hearts at the Investors Chronicle. Chris, there are lots of companies you might want to invest in, particularly those listed in the US. Um, lots of platforms give access to different markets, IG has um, many exchanges that you can buy from. What's the process for investing in an overseas listed stock? Is, is it the same as buying a UK stock? What might the co- cost differences be and is the process different? For investors who use the IG platform, it's very much the same as how they would invest in UK stock. We've taken the experience of our leverage trading platform and tried to make it as simple as possible just to pick any company uh, regardless of where they are. The process is the same in terms of um, the actual dealing. Um, there are, of course, those elements to bear in mind in terms of costs. 
an important thing to remember that with we can come to currency conversion in a minute but for for costs it is partially dependent on the number of trades you've done in the previous month um uh, for example us shares we do up to two trades in the previous month then it's usually um a fee of 10 pounds per share but if it drops down per, per trade rather if it drops if you do more than three in the previous month then it drops down to zero um the costs are high if you do it via the phone as well um again building on what we've done with our our leverage platforms it's focused mainly on online um stockbroking uh, as a quicker way of doing it rather than phoning in so that's why the charges are higher with phone dealing um but you've got a whole range of, of indices across the globe and in quite a number of emerging markets as well really it's almost too many to list in many ways um but it is very much a case of sort of going back to what we said earlier that the the, the whole most of the investing world is out there with some of some limitations in terms of the newest of emerging markets but with with most investors obviously looking towards the developed markets us uk europe australia um that those options are there and uh, japan as well um for those investors who want to look further afield yeah and in terms of foreign exchange fees is it is it the same for whatever exchange you're dealing on and do you have to pay them every time well, I think because I think you can hold for some currencies, you can hold the currencies in your account. Yes, we do. We do multi currency accounts, but usually with clients, they cannot. The, the usual default setting for for the investment platform is instant currency conversion. Again, it's something with with we've learned from the leverage trading side, where we look to make it as simple uh, as possible. So the currency conversion um, is done with a, with the the, the, the fee taken into account if you do it um to have manual currency conversion there's a commission of two cents per share with a minimum charge of i think it's 15 dollars on us stocks um and that can if you change the settings in terms of what you in terms of how you do this and it can affect the charges um so usually there's um if you sort of bring in manual currency conversion that doesn't mean that the commission free trading doesn't actually apply anymore so that's important to bear in mind we've tried to make it as simple as possible i think throughout the process um, and that's why we've we've had this instant currency conversion element included in there. So again, it sort of takes that element of worry out of the process. Obviously, FX is something you have to bear in mind anyway, because you will see these, you can see these dramatic moves in the FX markets, but particularly over the period of time, if you think about the dollar index, we're up 7% this year, or, or we were up 7%, I think this year, um, earlier in the week. Um, so that does have an impact, of course, if you're looking to buy US shares. And the same thing applies, of course, with with the euro. So bear those they might, they, that in mind. They can eat into those returns um, in your trading. And it's something that's something people do overlook, I think, really. And it's an important issue that shouldn't be forgotten. Yes, no. Um, currency fluctuations are, can, can make a big difference. You're absolutely right. And, and I guess they could also work to your favour as well as as well as against you. But it's really pretty much impossible to pre- to predict as i understand it and then there are other ways that um current you have to think about currencies and how they generate your terms in terms of how the company generates its revenues dan how much impact do you think currency fluctuations on overseas investments have and is it something you should be thinking about when picking your investments i think as chris says it's something you need to be mindful of but but it's probably best to leave it at that because, uh, as you say, Mary, it is it's fiendishly difficult to predict currency returns more so than any other asset, arguably. And, you know, therefore, I think it's just best left to an extent in the uh, the lap of the gods. You have to be wary of the fact that, yes, your your overseas investments can struggle if uh, if sterling rises. The flip side is if you've been holding overseas investments for the past few years, certainly 
um, dollar-based investments. You've probably had a nice artificial boost from sterling's fall against the dollar. Famous last words, but we've perhaps come to the end of that period now, so you need to be, be wary of the, the reverse. In terms of companies themselves, there will be some fluctuations, but most companies, certainly large companies, if you're holding individual um, positions, will be hedging these uh, positions themselves. So absent a huge sudden currency shock, which uh, is tends to be quite rare for, for major pairs, major currency, um, uh, major currencies, they they should be dealing with that themselves. So so those currency effects shouldn't really be too visible to your underlying portfolio. Uh, so yeah, something to watch out for and be mindful that it can work against you with overseas shares, but it's very hard to uh, uh, to try and limit that risk. You, I think you just have to accept it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's also worth bearing in mind that if you're investing in, I think it's 70% of the FTSE 100 gets its revenues from overseas. So <laughs> you're going to have overseas and currency exposure that way too. Exactly. Yeah. And once again, that's a, a nice, you know, relatively safe way of getting that exposure. Um, which you won't really see affecting your your bottom line, but it is there. Yeah, currencies a zero sum get some game ultimately. Great. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. But Dan, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. That was really interesting and a great overview of different overseas markets.